Welcome into the Ringerverse. This is the Ringer's Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. We cover the MCU, cover Star Wars, horror, whatever. We're going to get into some anime pretty soon if Charles has his way. Uh, <laughs> I am Van Lathan, host of Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay. And I have Charles Holmes with me, host of the Ringer Music Show. As always, we are known as the Midnight Boys. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity, the unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. We're taking on a little MCU debate as well as a special look at Jupiter's legacy and a chat with legendary comics creator Mark Millar. You can join Mallory Rubin on Tuesday. She's going to have all your mailback questions over there on the House of Mal on Tuesday. Make sure you check in with her. And we're going to have more Ringerverse surprises coming up these next couple of weeks as we kind of build up to the Loki premiere, which is I'd say what, like Charles, just about like a month out, just like a month away. About a month, the, about a month. It's it's coming out on Wednesday, so you know the Midnight Boys. They're out in the out in the streets. They're saying, "Are we too washed to stay up on midnights on Wednesdays?" You no, know, we're not too we're not too washed. I'm definitely we're, too washed. <laughs> uh, well, we're not too washed. I'm like my bedtime is ten thirty. We're, we're not we're not definitely we're not too washed because we're gonna try to get these screeners. That's what. Ooh. See, that's that's like ooh, and it's screener. Ooh. <laughs> but know, but are, before before we start, Van. Mm-hmm. They already kill us out here. They already kill us. They're like, where's the Midnight Boys pod? Today, mm-hmm. you just came back from vacay. What yeah. happened, my man? I thought you were lost at sea. No. What happened was we were supposed to do this podcast earlier <laughs> at 1030. And I came back from vacay. We got back in about 12 last night. I woke up and it was 1130. Now, I don't, it, it, and I have, it was like 1130 on the dot. So I had to scramble over here, do a rewatchables with Bill, and then do this podcast. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm not a midnight boy. Maybe, or maybe I was a midnight boy last night, which made Ooh. me a noon boy getting up. I I'm thought sorry. you were. I thought you were on Melinda Gates' private island. You know what I'm saying? Trying to get a little bit of that sweet, sweet billionaire cash. Could could be, could be, <laughs> but it's not. But I'll be honest with you. With Melinda Gates, it's not about the money. It's about her. It's about the fact that she's a beautiful woman. She's supple. <laughs> she is talented. She's amazing. A lot of people are talking about a billion dollars. That's not what it's about with me. It's, I look past that. I look into people's soul. I know you're on your bullshit now because you got a, the backwards cap on. You know what no, I'm saying? The reality but- is, as far as people are concerned, there haven't been many more beautiful or special people in this world. If you don't shut up, man. As Melinda Gates or Mackenzie Bezos. So, so anyway. Damn. Um, <laughs> I tell you, Dr. Umar going to come in here like, what? what are you talking about? <laughs> Dr. Umar about to get so pissed off. Um, okay, so look, uh, even though we don't have a show to recap, there has been a lot of nerd news happening yes. these last couple of days. Namely, it was reported earlier this week that DC is in search 
for something that so many of my sisters out here are in search for. They're in search for a black Superman. All right, we got a timeout. Like, Van, what time are you on right now? Is <laughs> My sisters. So the sisters don't want a black Superman? They do. They want somebody that can, you know, think about that. A black, that, that's, that's actually a good documentary. Actually, they did one called, like, In Search for Superman. But that's, like, good to search for a black Superman. DC now feels just like my uh, my uh, my mama and my sisters and them. They, they, they're looking for a strong black Superman right there. Now, DC is looking to, I guess, in their new upcoming Superman film, uh, which is going to be written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, they are looking to cast a black guy to play Superman in this movie. This is going to be Superman as a black guy. We are going to see a different version of Superman on the screen than, we, screen than we've ever seen before. And they're also saying in The Hollywood Reporter, they were saying... Potentially a period piece. His name is going to be Kal-El. So I actually don't know how they're pulling this off. It's, it doesn't seem like a new character. It just seems like, hey, Kal-El is black now. I kind of want to ask you, we just had this whole conversation about how hard it was for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier to pull it off. And they had like six or seven hours of content. Do you think it is possible for them to pull off a black Superman movie that's entertaining in two hours? I think so. I think uh, when you say period piece, we're talking about this is going to be set in the fifties or the sixties. Or I don't know. It was just, they like said that. it was a period piece. I, I'm not sure if they if if they said when. Which actually, that's a good that's a good question. When should it be set? It should be set in the modern day. Look, the DC is so good at overcomplicating things. I've never yes. seen, <laughs> and I hope they're listening. I've never seen a bunch of people that are so good at overcomplicating things. It's not that complicated. Speak on it. It's just not that complicated. Look, if they feel like it's going to bring something to the dynamic of the character of, of Superman to make him black, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I personally don't, I don't think it does much, it doesn't do much for me that they're making Superman black. Like, I don't feel any sense of pride or... None at all. I like not it doesn't it's not a thing for me. I think that there are, there are black characters that exist in DC and in Marvel that I would rather see get their shine. All right, this is this is where we're going to argue. List them for me. I hate this argument. List them for me. Like what what black characters do you think should get their shine uh that would be way better than Black Superman? I think Blue Marvel has a fantastic character. Uh like I think Blue Marvel is amazing. Blue Marvel in the MCU and I personally think uh, John Stewart as the Green Lantern. All right, we agree there. on John Stewart. My problem with my problem with a lot of things is like everybody's like, all right, let's. Why can't Icon from Milestone uh, get his shot in a movie? And I'm like, all right, do y'all know the history of how how royally DC has mistreated the McDuffie family? A, B, like I I think it's also setting us up for failure because. If we just put any black comic book character up on the screen and that shit don't make money, that's their perfect excuse to be like, see, y'all didn't come support it. We tried to do it. Y'all didn't support it. And I don't want to be in that position either. But I think the 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 only problem with your argument is that there's proof of concept on this. On Blue Marvel? No, not on Blue Marvel. There's proof of concept on taking a relatively obscure black comic book character and making it into a billion dollar movie. I think the I think Black Panther, it was, it was done very, very strategically, you know? Well, you go, well, then, well, then you're not talking about the character now. You're talking about the filmmakers, right? I'm so talking about the character and, like, Black Panther has, like, a very, very, like, 
rich, if complicated, history. If not, he's on the tier of characters, I would argue, that Iron Man was on before Iron Man was made. Not even close. Stop. No. Made by Jack Kirby. No. Has had no. some of the most amazing artwork. Maybe his comic book run, maybe his comic book runs weren't popular, no, but there have been wasn't. good comic books made about him. He was a he was a comic book character's comic book fan. Uh, he was a comic so book was character's Iron comic Man. book fan. If you if I went to any if I went to any soccer mom before Robert Downey Jr. was Iron Man, be like, yo, tell me the origin story of Iron Man. They'd be like, who? People knew Iron Man. They might have not loved him, but they knew him. Even like with with like Ghostface and all of that stuff, calling himself Tony Stark's, calling himself Iron Man, like all of that, like they knew Iron Man was a character that people knew. All right, maybe maybe he was one rung under, but Blue Marvel is like is the like the first step on the ladder in terms of popularity. I agree with you, but what I'm telling you is that in in Black Panther, the execution of the character's rollout was more important than who the character actually was. People didn't have a very good idea of who Black Panther was. They hadn't read, and there had been a lot of great Black Panther books, right? Hudlin had done a run. There, there was a lot of great Black Panther books, right? He had been a part of, a, a big part of the recent comic stories, being a part of the Illuminati and all of that stuff. He, they had expanded his role in these last years. But what I'm saying is that they were able to make people buy into the culture of Wakanda and into the character of Black Panther because of the way the character was handled in the MCU and not because of who the character was. So what I'm saying is when done right, you can get Black audiences to buy into, not just Black audiences, but audiences, period, to buy into a character that they don't, that they're not, they're less familiar with the source material. Marvel hasn't just done that with, 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 with Black Panther. They've done it with Doctor Strange. They've done it with Ant-Man. They've done it time and time again. I don't think it has anything to do with the characters themselves. I think it, I think what we're talking about has much more to do with both. the filmmakers. I think it's a mixture of, of good characters, good storylines, and being like, instead of like wanting all of it at once, sometimes I'm like, yo, like, let's just like, for example, like Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse. They did such a good job with Miles Morales. Same thing with Black Panther. Like, I'm like, yo, let's let's campaign for like Jon Stewart because yes, Jon Stewart deserves a movie. Static deserves a fucking movie. Now, if you ask me like, Charles, would you go watch an icon movie from the Milestone universe? I'd be like, I actually don't know. I have no emotional attachment to this character. I have an emotional attachment and many people do to a Static Shock to a John Stewart. You're right, but the thing with Static is that you know Static was on TV, man. Yeah, so Static, he's, a, like, he's a right, character, right? And 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 that worked. When when Static came out, we didn't know Static Shock. They, they threw it on TV. That worked because the story was well done. My thing is maybe you don't introduce Icon. Maybe you don't introduce John Stewart. Maybe you don't introduce them with a movie in and of themselves. Do you see the way Marvel did this? Marvel Marvel set up the stakes for Black Panther. By showing us just a man losing his father. I'm arguing there's a way to go about it where it's just like with Static Shock, I'm just like, yo, I would care about sta- I would care about a character like Icon or other milestone characters if you get static right. Because then if you introduce Icon in a static movie, I'm like, all right, cool. I'm there. In the same way, it's like when they bring in Storm, I would not be surprised if they introduce her through like a Black Panther vehicle, through Wakanda. And it's like, all right, cool it's not such a risk because I just never want to be in a position where like one of these movies fail and then like they blame it on black people for failing. 
if the movie fails, it's less about the character and more about the execution. And the MCU has proved that. The MCU fair, has proved fair. that you that you can execute characters that the audiences, even in your argument right there, Iron Man was not something that people were super duper familiar with. Yet the movie, five six hundred million dollars when it came out. So my thing is. If DC thinks that the way to get us to care about black people in the DC universe is to make Superman a black man, I would say to DC that we didn't give a fuck about Superman when he was white. Like, I mean, we agree on that. And the reality is, is that if you make a Superman movie and you change the Superman movie and make Superman a black character and you don't get the fundamental elements of this character right, you don't capture what it is that we love about Superman. It doesn't matter what you turn him into. They can't get Superman right. Get Superman right first. They can't get Superman right when he's white. They've gone through two white guys since Christopher Reeves, and both of them have failed. So before you put a black man in there, and we know, like, like I'm just like, guys, you just have to make a good movie. You have to just make a good Superman movie first. They're over. So we're going to make Superman, and now we're going to make it, period, right? So we're going to detach modern audiences away. We're going to beat people over the head with something. I'm all for I'm all for it. It's fine. It's great. I, Coates is a genius. But, man, it's almost like saying I can't run a, a mile. I don't have the car to run a mile, so I'm going to try to run a marathon. <laughs> it's just, it's like a, it's a weird thing to do, but Wait, anyway. can, can I pitch you? Can I pitch you on my, uh, my list, my top three list of who I think could actually pull off a black Superman if they Go were Superman. It. Honorable mention, I got killed for this, Tyrese. Okay. If we know Superman isn't going to be good, if we know like a black Superman movie, the chances of it being good because they, they can't get even white Superman right, at least make it entertaining. And Tyrese is one of the most entertaining actors that we have. That's my, that's my guy. So the homie of mine. So if Reese was going to get that look, I would be happy. Go ahead, Charles. Oh, come on. See you guys. Number three, number three, Michael Ward from Top Boy. Oh, I like him. I think he could do an amazing job. And I think what we've learned through the years with a, a good Superman is he can't be too recognizable of a face. He has to be a little bit, a little bit green, but still has the acting chops. And I think Michael Ward did an amazing job in Top Boy. Number two, he got the jawline for it. He got the body for it. My man Travante Rhodes from Moonlight. Okay. That Can works. you imagine He's that? He's good. Swole. Very swole as well. Very swole. Got the face for it. Mm-hmm. Come on. The women would love it. Yeah, they would. For sure. Last but not least, this is going to be controversial, but my number one pick, I think you say his name, Damson Idris from Snowfall. <laughs> He's too small. No, man. <laughs> like, no, like, man. Like, Put him in the gym, bro. <laughs> Put him in the gym. He's not tall enough. He's no, not man. Tall enough. Come He's on. He's not tall enough. Dancing, my man. Dancing, my man. Like, he, like... Oh, they can put I, some I, lifts, I, I, lifts in the boots. You know what I'm saying? He's too, he's too small, dog. He's, like, you're, he's too You're small. telling me you don't think... Like, if he put on some weight, he couldn't be Superman. He's not tall enough. It's, that's, not, that's not for him. Him turning to Lex and saying, I built this shit. Brick by brick. <laughs> brick Come brick on, Brick by brick. <laughs> oh, you know what's crazy, though? You know what's crazy, though? Uh, it, they got Damson listed here at 6'1". They got Damson listed at 6'1 here. I didn't know him to be that tall. I've been around him a lot. So, so, so... So I, I don't I don't see him as being Superman, but maybe if it's a period piece, come on, he got that kind of like he got that like 1950s face a little bit, right? 
Right. Come on. Damps, they got Damson as being 6'1". I, I, I've been around him. I've stood next to him a lot. I'm 6'4". I didn't ever see him as uh, as being that. But look, I think Superman obviously has to be somebody who has a physical presence. I think perfect for uh, for Superman would have been, but he's already in the, in the DCEU, is Yaya Abdul-Mahin. He was in Aquaman. He played Black oh, Manta. Oh, shit. Yeah, he'd yeah. be great. He'd be great. He'd be great. I, we haven't talked about the most usual of usual suspects in this situation, which is Michael B. Jordan, who it looks like it's been reported that Michael B. Jordan is not going to be Superman. Do you think that this is real or El Smokey Screenier? I don't think Michael B. Jordan's going to do it. And I, we, we were in an argument with my producers. Michael B. Jordan is one of our finest actors currently, if we look at his filmography, Okay. It's unmatched. It's from Marguerite Fiji is unmatched. Wire, Friday Night Lights, Fruitvale Station, Creed, Black Panther. Come on, he's my man. I don't Jummy? think he. I don't think he Jummy? should. Jomi, hmm? jump in. Jomi, don't jump in. Don't jump Jummy? in. Jomi, you're jump incorrect. In. Jomi wanted to say something. That's the, you're, you're wrong on that, Charles. Like he's he's a he's a great actor in his box, right? Creed, he's great. The Wire, he's great. Fruitvale Station, he's great. Once he gets outside of that and he starts doing without remorse, Genlock, he ain't got it. He doesn't got what it takes. And it's okay. I don't okay. want to hear anything from Jomi. Cut Charles, his mic. It's okay. I don't want to hear shit. I don't want to hear shit. <laughs> All Superman needs to do is teach, it, teach us how to fly. And I don't know if Michael you saw B. Friday Night Lights, but Michael B. Jordan made me, made me think I could bring home the championship. Yeah, if you want a boring Superman, that's fine. It's well within Michael B. Jordan's wheelhouse to be Superman. Superman has to have Come strength on. and charm. Um, as long as they don't make Clark Kent, uh, and I've said this before, the I said this on Higher Learning, the trick with making Superman black is going to be not Superman himself, but Clark Kent. Hollywood audiences don't like to see vulnerability on the screen from black actors. They like to see black men be these big tanks of virility, mm. uh, and they don't they don't allow that as much. So especially in roles, let me say this, in roles where vulnerability is the key, then sure. But in roles where you have like an action star and, and that type of deal, it's, I don't, it's difficult a lot of times like to see a bumbling, not cool black guy. Black guys are sort of fetishized in the culture as being super cool guys. Uh, so Superman would be harder, or easier to sell to them than Clark Kent would be. And, but you know, they moved away from the Clark, Clark Kent as the bumbling nerd as of recent. Clark Kent is just a guy with some glasses at this point. They're like the the, the classic Clark, Clark Kent where he's uh, unsure the Christopher of Christopher Reeves bumbling Clark Kent. Yeah. They, ain't they there. moved but away from You know guy. what? For, for, for one of the episodes, the audience could tell us if, if they want this. We should do a whole episode on how to fix DC. Because I think both of us, where oh, we I'm can agree, that. is like they, they, they don't have it right now. They, they're all over the place. We get a good movie and then we get a bad movie. Then we get an okay movie. Then we get a great movie. It's, it's wild over there. Do you want to dive into it now? Or do you want to save it for this episode then? Producer Steve, what do you think? Steve, what should we do? I say, I say we save it. I say we save, we save it. it. Audience, we save we're it. saving we save it. it. Saving it. How do you fix the DC Extended Universe? Uh, we're going to get into that. We're going to play Armchair CEO. I could fix DC if they made me the CEO. I'm not bullshitting you. I got one word for you that would fix DC. Lobo. No. Teen Titans. 
snow. Man, fuck. They already they did that. They they're doing that. They got a show, right? No, that's a that's a bullshit TV show. Teen Titans is their most valuable franchise, okay? Lobo, who wants a Lobo series, okay? Lobo would be fucking crazy. We need a good Teen Titans. We need an Avengers level Teen Titans movie. No, you do a Lobo, you do Lobo, big, white-skinned killer. You need Teen Titans. Anti-hero. You need Teen Titans, okay? We need, we need a dazed and confused, like, like, comedy. All right, we're for the pod. We're saving it for the pod. We'll save it for the pod. We'll save it for the pod. Before we go to court, which I'm going to wipe the floor with you in, can we talk (laughs) about the Eternals footage real quick that dropped? Can we switch the pages to the MCU? Switch pages to MCU real quick. So there was some Eternals footage that dropped this past week. There was a reveal. There was an MCU sizzle that came out. It had all the movies wrapped up into one. I didn't know that's something different that Marvel did. I didn't. I've never seen them do like a one, like a like a big huge trailer for all of them. It, it was to get people back into the theaters. I think get people the back thing. into the theaters. Okay. Uh, so in this trailer, it was released the title of Black Panther Two: Wakanda Forever, and we're gonna get four movies. In five months this year, and a lot of big films next year. What did you think about the Eternals footage that you saw? Fourteen seconds. They're they're winning me over, man. I really, I really thought like, I don't know how they're gonna pull off the Eternals. The Eternals as a book does not sell. As a concept, a lot of times it doesn't work. But you know, Chloe Zhao, she's off that Oscar win. She got the juice. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I think that the Eternals. Um, I, I told myself I wasn't gonna do this anymore. The Eternals are more gonna serve to set up the mutants than anything than more than I, get I know, the I know. fuck out of here we, why I, you broke our rule man we're not bringing up mutants until we get it man you broke the rule come it's, on that's man. what that's that's the point of having <laughs> the eternals the eternals are going to give us the x gene they're going to explain dog, dog. the the origins of humankind in marvel they're going to explain no, the deviants they're going to explain the x gene we're not doing this stop i i i make a pledge a solemn pledge right now throughout the entire run <laughs> of Loki to not bring up the mutants. I will not bring up the mutants during Loki. Although I will, I, I don't give a fuck if Loki goes, there was a man I once knew. He could read minds. <laughs> I, I don't care who the fuck who it is. I won't right, bring I'm it up. I'm holding you to this. I'm I holding won't bring it this. up during this, but I will say that I think it's a fair, it's, it's safe to say. So for people who don't know, the Eternals will break down sort of humanity's role in the cosmos uh, as seen by the Eternals, this ancient group of people who have been watching over humanity and sometimes bestowing humanity with different technologies and different um, sort of ways to get around some of the problems that we face for a long, long time that are seemingly awakened by something. They've been, for whatever reason, I think that their memories are going to have to be wiped and this is going to be a time where they, they awake. And in the story of the Eternals, you're going to get the story of why humans are special in the Marvel Universe and how they came to be. And to me, in that story, you're going to get all the different variations of humans. And that's how you're going to get the mutants. Yes, traditionally, like, the Eternals have a connection to, like, the Inhumans. They bestow all of, like, the mutated genes or whatever. I don't think you're wrong. I don't. But you know what? In this, actually, maybe this is. We should have a DC episode. Maybe we should just have a mutants episode. Maybe we should just say fuck it. Maybe we should just say fuck it. Maybe we should. But maybe 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 we should. Who knows? Who are knows? Are we ready for court yet, though? No, because god damn it, you you're you're, you're jumping onto it. I want to say something before we get to court. 
I want to say something before we get to court. And it's something that I said on Higher Learning, and I mean it. And I don't mean to trigger anyone or upset anyone when I say this. I saw the title for Black Panther 2. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is the name of the movie. And I'm very excited about the movie. Very excited to see the expanded role for Shuri in this. I'm very excited to see this. I've never felt stronger, though, that at some point we have to recast T'Challa. And I, I know that that's difficult for for Stop. a lot of people. I, I, I know Stop. that that's difficult for a lot of people. I know that it is. It hurts. It's painful uh, that our brother passed away. But the only way to double that pain, to me, is to take that character along with him. And th- the reason why I say that is because he, Chadwick Boseman, really cared about T'Challa coming to the screen. And the story of Black Panther and the story of Wakanda is so connected to how, how, to how T'Challa sees the world and the conflicts that go on between him being king and coming to terms with that. Even when he's not the king anymore, even when he's not Black Panther and Shuri is Black Panther, the character in which we discover so much of this, the conscience of the Avengers, right? A lot of times, the regal, the guy who makes the... is T'Challa. And we've only seen that for, what, four movies. There's so much more that T'Challa has to do. And it's, it's unthinkable right now at this soon to, to discuss somebody else portraying the character. But if we want to tell our stories for as long as... When I say our stories, I mean the stories of Black characters in this in comics. For as long as some of these other characters have been told, right? If we're talking about Superman, or if we're talking about Spider-Man, or if we're talking about the Hulk, or if we're talking about any of these other guys, right, that have had multiple different people play them, we're going to have Batman. We're going to have to get to that point with Black Panther 2. There's going to have to be a new generation of kids who understand not just the character of Black Panther, but the character of T'Challa as Black Panther. And at some point, we're going to have to be able to, I know everybody's upset, we're going to have to have a real conversation about recasting that character. I think it's going to be necessary. And it didn't really hit me until I saw Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. There's just too much story that's connected to T'Challa. And we're going to need him back at some point. All right, so I, I fundamentally disagree with you for two reasons. The first is, I would agree if we did not have an amazing actress standing right there with Letitia Wright. If we did not have comic books that have set it up that T'Challa's sister can be Black Panther. And I think the wound is too recent, A, and Letitia Wright is too gifted of an actress to not give her the chance to play Black Panther and to honor the legacy of like the character T'Challa, but also Chadwick by by continuing on. And I think there was a certain vision in a certain movie that they cannot make anymore. But to recast it is, in my opinion, the second opinion is like, I think almost disrespectful to Chadwick. And I, I think the, the, level, the level of like the failure that you can have with that to me isn't worth it. Especially when you have an option that still has that connective tissue to it. Because I don't think there is an actor alive right now in this time that can do what Chadwick did just because of the emotional attachment we have to him. Right. I, I, I'd agree that you can't recast it now. That's, that's something you do a decade from now. Oh, that's, no. It's going to no, have to be sooner stop. than that, bro. No, it can't. The wound is too recent. Oh, my man, we can't. But that, that's, to, to me, 
I care way more about the legacy of Chadwick Boseman than I do of T'Challa. But Chadwick Boseman's legacy lives in a lot of so roles. So why can't, why can't Letitia Wright carry on as Black Panther? She can, and she will. It, and it'll be amazing. But the reality is that there's so much about Wakanda and so much even about the future of the Avengers and the MCU that you need T'Challa, that you need T'Challa. I, I just think that there's not an actor alive who can do it, not because they're not talented enough, but because there are far too many emotions that we have to Chadwick. Like Chadwick as T'Challa is like an icon. That's like Christopher Reeves as Superman. There's a reason that he had to wait so long for someone else to become Superman and for people to believe it. And I just think it's too recent. Well, also he, but the, the only difference is that is he played Superman for a decade. Like he played Superman for so a you're tell- decade. So you're telling me in Wakanda Forever, if they recast it to T'Challa. No, Wakanda Forever, you can't recast T'Challa. I'm not saying that. I'm not, uh, you can't do it then. But what I'm saying is that for, for, there were a lot of things, there are a lot of differences in the Christopher Reeve scenario than in the, than in the, um, the Black Panther scenario. But I'll tell you this though. I'll say you have Black Panther Wakanda forever, right? I'd say the next film that we're talking about in Wakanda, we have to, T'Challa has to come back. T'Challa has to come back, okay? Give it to Letitia Wright. Give her, like, this is my thing. Like, the way you honor Chadwick's legacy is that Chadwick made us believe that a black man can be the most successful superhero in the world. And if you give, if you give Letitia Wright that chance, I think that she can prove that a black woman can be the most successful superhero in the world. I and I think sure she should be given that chance. That she can. It's not about that. I just don't understand the way to honor Chadwick's legacy in portraying T'Challa is to not have anyone, to, to have T'Challa wiped off the face of the MCU. Don't have it wiped off. Just give it more time. Let it rest. Well, well more time. I, I just I think 10 years is a long time. Agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. <laughs> All right. That wasn't even court, by the way. That wasn't even court. But Charles, I'm taking you to court right now to Midnight Boys Midnight Court. (laughs) This week on Midnight Court, Van Lathan is accusing his co-host Charles Holmes of snorting cocaine while claiming that Age of Ultron was a better movie than the original Avengers. Charles Holmes claims he, quote, said it with his chest. The judge, Steve Allman, will now hear opening statements. Thank you, Bailiff Jomi. Now, these are very serious charges. Mr. Van Lathan, with the prosecution, you shall have opening arguments first. My opening statement is this. The Avengers movie, the OG Avengers, 2012, directed by that great guy known as Josh Whedon, set not only the standard for the MCU's Avengers going forward, but it set the standard for the superhero team-up movie in a flawless and seamless way, okay? Flawless and seamless. The movie was perfect from the standpoint of developing the characters' relationships to one another. Objection! Objection, Your Honor. 
and the way Sustained. the Avengers you can't you can't address you can't object during the opening <laughs> statement the way the characters uh, uh, see each other and the way they interact in the MCU and I feel like those are all the problems that Age of Ultron has ladies and gentlemen of the jury I know my client and his ideas seem strange some might even say absurd some of you know him by Charles other Coke Baby Chuck or even Beige Wolf but I know him as a kind and thoughtful soul that was gaslit by Mr. Lathan. So I implore you to keep light of one simple fact. My client did not say he thinks 2015's Avengers Age of Ultron was a good movie, nor did he try to claim that it was among the Marvel Cinematic Universe's best offerings. It is. Instead, in his humble estimation, he declared that it's a better movie than the bland, if competent, 2012 Avengers. And today, I will regale you with undeniable proof that his words were not blasphemous, but instead are wisdom culled from years of being a nerdy loser. That is all, Your Honor. First of all, Your Honor, I would just like to say that in opening statements, the defense has clearly offended and (laughs) insulted the prosecution. And I'm not going to rule it on that from the chair. Uh, about whether or not you can call someone a nerdy loser in your court of law. I, I was calling myself and my, my client a nerdy loser. The bailiff Jomi will have that stricken from the record. Thank you. Okay, exhibit A, Avengers, the 2012 edition. I'm going to give you a scene from this sublime piece of work. The first scene is uh, of my evidence is Thor meets Captain America meets goddamn Iron Man. The battle in the woods. Fantastic scene. Sets up everything. Steve Rogers is on the plane. Black Widow is flying. Thor comes in, steals Loki. Black Widow looks at Steve Rogers, says, these guys, you might want to sit this one out. These guys are pretty much of legend. They're basically gods. Steve says, there's only one god. I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. He then jumps out of the plane with, with the parachute, which he's not going to need in any other movie, but he used the parachute in this particular time. <laughs> Tell you what this is about. Number one, we're, we're, we're defining these characters. Iron Man flies after Thor. Steve says, we need an attack. Iron Man says, I have a plan. Attack. That scene right there actually sets the groundwork for civil war. These guys have two diverging ways of viewing the world. Steve is a battle tactician. Iron Man is a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants type of guy. These dudes are different. There's going to be a power struggle in the Avengers for the future of the team. It's set right there. Steve is brave enough as Captain America, which is some stakes we haven't seen him. To this point, we've seen Steve fighting against the Red Skull and other Earthbound people. He's brave enough to jump into a fight with gods, right? With gods, okay? And hold his own. That scene is directly linked to Endgame when the entire world is going to be fired superpower beatings, beings, right? And it's just going to be Steve Rogers face off against all of these guys. And what does he do? Strap in the shield. The character development setting up for the rest of the MCU that is done even in this Thor's relationship with his brother Loki. He knows Loki is wrong. But he's torn between two worlds, one world being Asgard and one world being the humans that he loves. 
And he's going to have to make a choice that's going to set him on a path, the path that we're going to get in Ragnarok, the path that we're going to get. All of this comes through in one scene. In one scene, you get this. And that's just one example. I could go to other scenes as well. One example. And even in the fighting, they fight all to a stalemate because they all realize they have a common goal. Age of Ultron simply doesn't have any of this. It's a movie with a very, very ridiculous, nonsensical villain. And really, to be honest with you, um, in a movie of the Avengers bickering over things that they should be able to figure out pretty easily. Mr. Holmes, you have the floor. Beautiful ladies and gents of the jury. Avengers Age of Ultron is so beautiful because of the emotional moments. Moments that arguably are way more important to the future of the MCU. Exhibit A. When they're all at the party and Mjolnir is sitting there and all of them try to lift it, it says everything about these characters. It shows us why Cap is almost worthy, but not yet. And we see why in movies like Civil War. We see James Rhodey and Iron Man being just mad and don't understand why they can't lift it. We see emotional scenes of Hawkeye meeting his wife when the Avengers are, are, are dispatched easily. And we're all, all through these movies, we're like, why is Hawkeye there? He only has arrows. And we learn why he's there. Because he is the human among gods keeping them together. It is one of the most touching moments of the entire movie. We see Vision lifting the hammer. We see Cap in the opening fight sequence going, language, okay? We see what type of person he is. There is so much humor and heart in Age of Ultron that sets up everything that we will come to know. Even... The last Avenger, the title of the last Avengers movie, Endgame. I would argue that without Age of Ultron, you don't get Infinity War. You don't get Endgame because we have to see Tony fail so miserably to see a vision of what happens if he does not put a suit of armor around the world. And without that, you get nothing else. And I can't say that about 2012's Avengers. It's nice, the Power Ranger costumes, the fighting, a bunch of aliens that who cares about that look like CGI pickles. But you're telling me that in Age of Ultron, you don't feel that hard? I find that hard to believe. Your Honor, uh, if I'm allowed to redirect? (laughs) You're allowed three minutes on the floor right now. Three minutes on the floor to redirect? Uh, Ladies and gentlemen of the court, who gives a fuck about the Avengers trying to lift me in there? Like who, like, who, like, who gives a shit? No one gives a shit. One guy can lift the fucking hammer. They never really explained why Vision actually is worthy to lift me in there the moment after he is born. There's so much stuff crammed into Age of Ultron that the movie doesn't seem like it really knows what it wants to be. Ladies and gentlemen, jury, I'll ask again, who gives a fuck about Hawkeye? There's nothing that happened what? in Age of Ultron that oh made you give any more of a fuck about Hawkeye. The, the reality is that, yeah, was it sad when Hawkeye's kids and his wife got snapped away? Yeah, but it would have been sad even if Age of Ultron would have never happened. Anybody's fucking wife and kids getting snapped away is sad. Is it cool in Age of Ultron when he helps Scarlet Witch come out and become an Avenger? Sure, it's cool. 
We're not even going to talk about any other things. We're not going to talk about the crass execution of Quicksilver shot in, in, like, in, in the face, okay? We're not going to talk about any of that stuff. We're, we're not going to talk about any of this stuff. We're not going to talk about the crazy way in which Ultron is a lackluster villain who we're not even sure what his motivations are. None of that. But I will tell you this. If Age of Ultron is necessary for Endgame, the OG Avengers is fucking doubly necessary for Endgame because there would have been no Avengers. It wouldn't have happened. And the first time we even see Thanos is in the credits, the, the end credit scene of this movie, introducing the character to the entire world. It's the formation of the team. It is funny. It gives you more one-liners. Billionaire, genius, playboy, philanthropist. Bam. All right? The whole nine gives you point break. It gives you all of those things. It is the perfect melding of heart and hero. The prosecution fucking rests. All I can say to that is what a bunch of hooey. (laughs) Who are the villains of Avengers? It's definitely not Loki. He's an antagonist. If it's the Chitauri, the Chitauri are terrible. They look like Saturday morning cartoon fodder. But Ultron, I get Ultron. I understand Ultron. Okay? Is he a little clunky? Yes. But... His hatred for Tony Stark, his hatred for humanity, for the people that created him, created this Frankenstein. How can you not relate? I surely can relate. People have called me a monster. People haven't understood me. And when I look at Avengers Age of Ultron, I see a movie that is more assured of itself. Can anybody who saw Cap Suit in the original Avengers tell me that I'm supposed to believe that this man comes from the greatest generation? No, 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 no. No, sir. Okay? There is so much about the original Avengers, a movie that I think is fine, that just looks like utter garbage. And they fixed that in Age of Ultron. You see it in the battles. Now, when we talk about the greatest battles in the MCU, you guys are telling me, the jury, that you didn't enjoy Iron Man's Hulkbuster versus Hulk? The intro storming of Von Strucker's base in the beginning? when they all freeze frame and we realize how great these heroes are together, when they all vision Quicksilver, Wanda, the original Avengers are flying, trying to defeat Ultron at the end, you are telling me that this is as good as Hawkeye shooting some arrows at some aliens? I think that we are all looking at the original Avengers with some rose-colored glasses. And may I present to you that maybe we need to update our prescriptions at LensCrafter. And trust me, the Spotify insurance is good, and I'll put all of you on my plan. I rest my case. Jesus Christ. Thank you both, gentlemen, for your cases, <laughs> your arguments. I'll instruct our jury. Please go to at Ringiverse on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This Monday, there will be a poll to determine who has won Midnight Court. Court shall be adjourned until next week, Friday. That was Midnight Court. Look, uh, I'm not going to try to influence the jury. I'm not going to this try to influence the, the jury. jury. No, I'm not. I'm not going to try to influence the jury. 
Jurors out there, I thought the case was beautifully argued by Charles Holmes. I think the answer is clear. Anyway. All right. And for uh, even if you guys hated my arguments about Age of Ultron, I knew you are going to hate my arguments. Guys, <laughs> stick around for my interview with Mark Millar. I talked to him about his new superhero show, Jupiter's Legacy on Netflix. Van, have you started watching it yet? Did you get some screeners? I, I have not started watching it yet. I'm looking very forward to watching it, and I'm looking very forward to discussing it next week on The Midnight Boys with you, Charles Holmes. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to save our review for that. It's, uh, it's a story about flawed Superman and the kids that they create. So we're mm. going to save all of that, but we're going to talk to Mark about it coming to Netflix. We're going to talk about a little bit of Falcon and the Winter Soldier and uh, what he thinks about some of the controversies around that and building a whole universe at Netflix. Court has been adjourned. The beige wolf has made his plea. Which one of the midnight boys will win? Even the jury should know it's me. That's all I got for y'all. Jesus Christ. Bye, Charles. Get the hell out of here. You guys, up next on the Ringiverse. Be sure to join Mal on her deep dive show next Tuesday. She's going to be talking about the Bad Batch. And then, you know, check in with us on Ringiverse on all of our socials. IG, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of those. We're going to leave you right now with Charles's interview with Mark Millar. Midnight Boys out. I am so happy to be interviewing Mark Millar. Like when I was a kid, probably too young, I was raised on your comics. You were one of the comic book guys I was going to the shop every week and I was getting all of your books. So it's an honor to, to interview you. How are you doing today? Doing good. You know, it's funny as I as I get older and I've been in the business a long time, I do meet guys with beards who say to me, <laughs> I've been reading your stuff since I was a kid. It always surprises me. <laughs> Please tell me you're 15, but you've just got a giant 15-year-old beard, you know. So. It, it was just a goatee back then, you know. I couldn't I could it wasn't filled in yet. But um one of the books that I read back then was Jupiter's Legacy. And I kind of wanted to know from you, do you remember like when that idea first hit? Like, were you at a computer, at a convention? When did you have this big, grand, epic idea? I can tell you exactly. I was at DC for years. I was at Marvel for years. And I, I was thinking I need to do something to top DC or Marvel, you know, or any of the work I did there, which was all big books and everything. I need to do something bigger if I'm going to come back and do more superheroes. And I just created Kick-Ass. This would be right about 2008, Kick-Ass came out. And the financial crash happened. And Kick-Ass, you know, it was really big. You know, the book sold crazy numbers. The movie made within like two years of the book coming out and everything. It was nuts. I thought, I thought if I'm going to go back and do more superheroes, I have to make it huge. And the financial crash was a big inspiration for me. I was actually thinking superheroes were kind of created in the last depression after the 1999 Wall Street crash and everything. And, and I was just thinking about that cyclical nature of history and everything. I thought, that's really interesting. And I started putting notes together. But it was actually 2012 before I sat down and thought, right, I'm going to do this. But I had post-it notes all over my office and all that. I've been thinking about it for years. Uh, so I think it was actually, yeah, end of 2011, beginning of 2012, I sat down and I wrote at the top of a page, this has to be the greatest superhero epic of all time. And that was the bar <laughs> I put for myself, you know? Um, and, and I just, I, I thought this has got to be great or what's the point? And I was digging into some of um, the interviews you were doing around the time of 2013 and, and you said, quote, I'm not doing a thing that's talking about comics. So even back then, were you feeling maybe tired or worn out by kind of like the tendencies of, of a generation to deconstruct uh, superheroes and comic books? Because that's what we were getting a lot of. 
yeah, I wanted to do something that was quite uncynical, you know, because yeah, I had a lot of that. And I liked the idea of something that was just pure. It was like a pure superhero story. So I went back to not just the Golden Age, which was the most pure kind of almost childlike kind of version of superheroes. I went back 10 more years, you know, so this is 1929, pre-Superman by almost a decade. And I actually thought, well, here's the first ever superheroes. Here we go. We'll, we'll, we'll start from scratch. And it doesn't refer to any other comic books, which is great because if you're a comic book fan, you're going to love it. But if you're somebody who's not familiar with this stuff as well, it's a great entry point. Because one of the things some people find hard is comics is a bit like a club sometimes. And it's if you're new, where do I pick up the first book? So I like the idea of something that, you know, my, my 75-year-old aunt can read. You know, you can just, have, well, I hope she doesn't actually. Some of <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, you can just pick this up and you're, you'll, you'll enjoy it. What was the most challenging part of developing the show? Because when I was going back to read book one, part of the book is set in 2022. So it was wild. I'm like, damn, like, <laughs> we're, we're, we've almost caught up to it. So what was the most difficult part over the years about adapting Jupiter's legacy? Well, it's funny. I, I sort of thought, well, it'll still be relevant, you know, in a few years' time. Because, uh, you know, I remember back in 2013 when it first came out thinking, well, you know, by the time this comes out as a movie or a TV show, the world's going to be in a much better place. And America's going to be <laughs> completely at ease with itself. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, the weird thing was it just got crazier and crazier every year. Um, so, so strangely, it's actually more relevant than ever. So um, it, that side of it wasn't hard um, because maybe the world's just always kind of crazy. Maybe this is just the way it, it kind of is. But the fact that they even make references to the 1919 global pa pandemic and everything, you know, the, the, the cyclical nature of history in this show is so palpable, it's, it's crazy. But I think the, the challenge is always to make it better than everything that came out last year, you know I mean? I think what I love about superhero cinema is that every year it's, it gets kind of more interesting, you know, like... 20 years ago, when this period that we love, this superhero period of two decades, when this started, it seemed really ambitious to do a movie where Spider-Man is fighting the Green Goblin. I mean, people were like, our audience ready for our organic web shooters, you know? <laughs> and, and like things like X-Men and everything seemed unthinkable. You know, like a team, a team of superheroes, that's too much. We have to dress them in costumes like the Matrix because nobody can handle superhero costumes and everything, you know? Yeah. So it's really fantastic what's happened is the evolution of, of uh, this stuff in pop culture but that's come with its own challenges because if you if you do something that's not awesome it's going to be judged really harshly and and I love the fact the standard is so high I mean who would have guessed you know tw 25 years ago when there was sucky superhero movies made out every couple of years you know the, the terrible Batman movies and everything uh, who would have guessed the best directors the best writers the best actors in the world want to do this stuff so, so we're lucky we're at a point in culture where the world is ready for Jupiter's legacy and we're kicking off blockbuster season uh, with this thing, which would have been unthinkable even five years ago. Yeah, I wanted to actually talk about kind of like the landscape right now. Recently, we've been inundated with new versions of a very old idea. This question of what if Superman wasn't completely good? It's something that you touched on in like 2003 with Red Sun, and now you see it in The Boys and Invincible. So why do you think we're so drawn to this idea of an evil Superman or a Superman that's not perfect. But I, th I think it's just a natural evolution of exploring themes in pop culture. So what you have is you have the idea and then you have a subversion of the idea. And the idea is really interesting and you get a lot of decades out of that. And then the subversion of it, you get uh, something cool for a while too. We haven't done the evil take. You know, what we've done is we've sort of, 
looked at it from an angle has never been looked at before. That the evil version, you know, this, uh, the one that I love from the boys in Invincible and everything, is very different because it's like, what if this guy was a bad guy? Where we're kind of taking that archetype, which everybody knows and playing with it in different ways. Our thing is, what if that guy was a dad and he was married and he had a couple of kids and he's one of his daughters was on drugs. His daughter was on drugs all the time. His son is a disaster who's never going to be as good as he is and he knows he's getting old and these people are going to be taking over the family business and that's kind of scary if you if you can move mountains and you think my kids are kind of idiots you know when i was growing up i came I, I came to comics at a time where i think it was kind of another independent revolution and it's it's crazy to see you're seeing all of these independent comics now compete with marvel and dc properties and and people love them just as much and i wanted to know from you you were outspoken back then about like Stanley telling you basically like, why don't you go tell your own characters? And recently I was listening to a pod where Ed Brubaker was kind of talking about how his feelings were hurt, that he has to watch Winter Soldier and, and maybe not be able to reap all those benefits. So to you, do you think that there's a way forward for comic book writers and artists that makes it a more equal industry within the big two? Or do they have to do something like you and Kirkman and go build something separate from that to reap the benefits. I, I think the path that Stan recommended to me was so brilliant. And I'd, I'll say this for every single creator out there. I think it works in every aspect of life in the creative uh, arts is work with a big company and build up your name and then go and start your own thing. And then some of your audience is coming with you, you know, because the big company will reach more people than you will reach on your own. You know, so you build up that massive audience and you take it with you whenever you go off and do your own thing. And it means you've got really strong legs when you go out there with something new. Whereas you can still do it, you know, if it's just you and you've never been heard of before. But how much easier is it to sell into bookstores and comic stores and everything if you say, oh, this is the guy that did Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen or Civil War or something? You know, it's, it's so much easier to have a name. But there's another side to this too, which is, I had a hell of a time at Marvel. I loved it. I really, really, really had a great time. I was there for almost a decade. I wrote all the things I loved as a kid. And it was the same at DC. I, I got to write Superman, which is my favorite thing. You know, so so there's that aspect. Because like, sometimes it's not always about the business side. You know, sometimes it's the pure love of doing it. You know, so I, I paid really well when I was at Marvel. It was great. I mean, obviously, you make a lot more money owning your own things. But I wouldn't swap those days for anything. And it gave me the audience that I needed to go off and do my own thing. But I also got to write Wolverine, you know, like I got to write <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's awesome, you know. I, I think that the mistake some people maybe make is to hang around too long and then only do the, the company-owned stuff and then you maybe feel, you know, it's uh, you've, you've lost out in some kind of way. I think the, the the trick is to try and do both if you can. And what I did for a while when I was at was I spent half my month writing Marvel stuff and the other half writing Miller World stuff. I did that between about 2004, 2009. And that was nice because it meant I had cash coming in and everything. And I, I realized, you know, like the first thing I did was wanted, made $340 million as a movie and everything. And then as soon as I did Kick-Ass, within minutes, you know, we had the movie deal and everything. It was it was crazy, you know? So I thought, right, I'm going, I'm going to make a go of this, you know? I'm going to give this a try. For you, when you're writing a comic book, you have so much control. Like, you have so much control over what happens, the flow of the story. Yeah. But a TV show, I, I would think, is different. You have a showrunner, you have a room, you have to, like, flesh out hours of TV. So what was that like for you, having to potentially, like hand over some of the reins to to a series that you and and Frank built by yourself? It's a little different from other people. Generally, what happens if you're the, the rights holder, you know, when you license a thing to a studio to make, 
you do give up a certain amount of control. And I, I did Unwanted, which was awesome. I mean, I was really happy with it. But my, my involvement was minimal on the film side. Kick-Ass and Kingsman, I was very involved because Matthew and I are good friends and we speak every day and everything. But I kind of had a little secret advantage here is that I'm the president of Miller World at Netflix, right? So, so I can choose the showrunner and I can choose the director. <laughs> so, so it does give you a certain amount of leverage, you know? But at the same time, you also have to be super respectful and really respectful of who you bring in because there's nothing, nobody's going to be, you know, your your slave or puppet or whatever. You, you, you have to respect them as as a brilliant creative in their own right, you know, so you don't ride roughshod ever, over everyone. But that's what is very important. What we've done in all these properties that you'll hear about coming up is we interview lots of people. We talk to lots of potential creatives, find the people who seem to be on the same page, who have the best vision for it uh, and, and work with them. And then there's just always fine tuning and things on the back end. So, so by the end of the process, I mean, by the time, I think it was in March, early March, we handed in a lot to eight episodes we were delighted, you know, we were really happy with it. You know, it's, it just hung together well. So there was no no surprises or nothing I, I disagreed with or anything. And then, you know, some some great suggestions. I mean, Stephen and I came up with the idea of taking um, the journey that's in half of issue one and a chunk of issue four, making that half of the first season, you know, the 1929, which was a terrific idea because one, it makes it unique. I mean, what superhero shows half set in 1929? You know, it looks more like Godfather 2. It looks incredible. But the other thing is it meant we were really emotionally invested in those characters, like their journey, their secret origin meant something. Um, and I loved that. Sam Raimi did it with the first Spider-Man movie. He took a 16-page Stan Lee Steve Ditko story at the origin and turned it into a two-hour movie. But this is like monumental. You know, by the time those guys find this mysterious island that doesn't exist, it feels like man meeting God. You know, this, you're, it feels cosmic by the time you get there. Whereas when we talked about doing this as a movie, that was going to be a five-minute pre-credit sequence. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, um, you announced that we're getting the final book in the, um, in the Jupiter's Legacy saga. Can you yeah. tell, tell audiences what they can expect uh, before that hits uh, newsstands? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, The Jupiter's Legacy story has been four volumes so far. You've got um, one and two, which is kind of the past, the parents and everything. Then you've got the present day storyline, which is Chloe and, and, and Brandon and Hutch and everyone. That storyline, uh, the one Frank Whiteley drew. And then the next storyline jumps forward the generation again. So you've got the, the past, the present, and this is going to be the future. So it starts with uh, Chloe and Hutch being married and having children and where it goes from there. And it ties everything up. It's it's the mystery of what the island really is completely explained. It's uh, it's the resolution for all of these characters, what it's all been about, what it's all secretly been about. You think it's been about one thing, but it's been about something else. And that was the plan from the very beginning. Where this all goes is insane. It's uh, 30, uh, 12 issues long and three of them are double-sized. So it's a beast, it's an absolute beast. But this is this will have taken me in total 10 years to write, 10 years to write actually typing. Uh, these six volumes and I think it's it's my best thing you know this and Magic Order are the two things I'm most proud of I think really yeah, wow I'm really, I'm really really happy with them oh Magic Order I would I would love to see that next on screen but I'm not gonna <laughs> we'll, we'll get that all I'll say about Magic Order is I've already written books two three and four you know so so we're you know things are ticking along Lastly, I wanted to know, I think while we have you, for comic book writers today, younger comic book writers, yeah. comic book artists, I think it's been a really, really hard 
year with the pandemic and the comic book industry. What advice would you give them, especially if they're trying to embark on a career like yours, where they're trying to make characters of their own and they're trying to sell it to an audience when comic book stores are shutting down and it's people are scared. Like what advice would you give them? I just, there's so many ways to do this just now, you know, like when I was a kid, the only way to get noticed was to self-publish something, which cost a lot of money. Like I didn't have money to do that, you know? So you were hoping to try and get in on the independence because it cost hundreds, if not a couple of thousands to put together a black and white self-published comic book and try and sell it as shows and everything, you know? And I never had that money, but I managed to come in through the, the independent comics where somebody slightly covered those costs a little bit. And then I got in, I started small and worked my way up through British comics, got into DC, Marvel, so on. Now you can actually do it so much easier because the internet is your greatest friend. Get out there, get your stuff seen by as many people as possible. And if you've done something interesting, here's the absolute beauty of now, right? Why I love this period in time is that if you've done something interesting and people start talking about it, everyone can know about your book within 24 hours. Like that was unthinkable years ago. You had to take out double page ads and wizard that you could never afford and all this kind of thing. <laughs> but the internet is an amazing leveler. It's a great democratizer. It's fantastic. So what you've you've got is uh, the, as big a resource as Marvel and DC have got. You know, your, your budget is almost the same online if you think about it. You know, if you do something cool, it just has to be cooler than what Marvel and DC are doing to get people talking about your work. But I would still recommend going in that Marvel DC route. I do think. Uh, not to undervalue it, it's actually a great way to get known. And if you do a great run on Iron Man or you do a great run on Batman or something like that, or even one of the smaller characters, what an amazing entry. It's a calling card for your career, isn't it? You know, I, th- I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing to do. Mark, I am honored, honored <laughs> to interview you, Jupiter's Legacy. I had a blast watching it. And I just want to say congrats that it's almost out in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's out my wedding anniversary, actually, next week. It's out on May the 7th. And uh, my wife's my wife's the CEO at Netflix, and I said to her, "That's my gift to you. Actually, I don't need to buy you anything." <laughs> She's probably just happy it's out. She's like, "It's out. We can celebrate." <laughs> Yo, thank you so much, and have a have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you. 